Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Gavin Reese. Now, Gavin is a retired police officer like myself. Uh, he uh, he writes the Father Michael Thomas series and another series as well that we're going to talk about. Very thoughtful uh, guy, interesting to talk to, uh, uh, very friendly. One of those people you can spend time at a bar with and uh, uh, really enjoy yourself. So uh, I'm bellying up to the bar here in just a moment or two. Uh, feel free to join us, and uh, I think you'll enjoy the conversation that follows. Uh, first, I do want to remind you that uh, Wrong Place, a Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down Out Books is a mid-sized crime fiction publisher that uh, delves into books that uh, tend to reside down at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If this is the kind of crime fiction you enjoy, you can find out more at their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks.com, all spelled out. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. And in fact, part of that journey, if you like grifters and con stories, is the novella anthology series, A Grifter's Song, that I created and edit. And this is in its fourth season. The most recent episode, Vincent Zandri's Concrete and Cocaine, that's available now, episode 25. And coming on May 1st, episode 26, Ghost Image from Cat Richardson. Uh, so check that out. Each story is self-contained, but there is a series arc, uh, as it is the same two characters, uh, uh, Sam and Rachel, that are featured in every episode. Although every author comes at it differently, and of course the setting is different, the con is different, the writing style is different, uh, and I've been fortunate to work with some absolutely wonderful authors, including Kat, uh, whose ghost image will be out on May 1st. All right, uh, let's talk to... Gavin Reese. Well, Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Frank. It's an honor to be here, and I'm incredibly indebted to you for making time, sir. Well, I'm the one who's lucky to have you here, and um, I'll actually, I was lucky to have been on your podcast. Uh, maybe we can start by talking about that for just a second. Uh, Writers on the Beat is a kind of a similar podcast in some ways to Wrong Place, Right Crime, but you have your own take on it as well. Yeah, I got invited to start that podcast a few years ago from uh, Pam Stack. She's the the producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And mm -hmm. Love uh, when I was, yeah, she's such a wonderful person. But when I was on her show, um, she sort of talked to me about, you know, maybe doing a podcast and what I'd like to talk about. And to me, the, the first thing that came to mind is that there's uh, not a lot of resources, I think, out there to help writers create more authentic crime fiction, at least a lot of accessible resources, right? Like you can go to, um, you know, like a writing academy, you can put yourself through a civilian's uh, or citizen's police academy. Um, you can make friends with a detective, but a lot of those options aren't available to folks. And so I really hope to bring in experts who are both incredible writers um, or who had specific expertise valuable to writers and be able to kind of break apart how they do what they do in a way that gives aspiring writers a tidbits, little snippets of, uh, of information that they can use to improve their own craft and their own writing. 
So whereas this show is uh, mostly about introducing crime fiction authors to the readers, you're kind of there for the crime fiction writers. Yeah, and I I think that a lot of the a lot of the questions, a lot of the dialogue um, on that show would still be really enjoyable to f- folks who are fans of a particular author who's mm-hmm. who's been on there. You know, I think a lot of folks, you know, if you really enjoy reading, you know, James Rollins novels. Um, I think most people who are fans would also really enjoy a lot of, you know, how does he do the things he does on paper? But it's, uh, yeah, really more intended uh, for the the folks who are want to become authors, want to put their own story out, even if it's just for friends and family. Well, I thought it was a very, uh, I guess, intellectual might be the word. Uh, it was a very, it was a little deep when we were talking. We talked about some deep stuff and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I guess we should tell folks that uh, part of the reason why you're why you are well equipped to host a show like that is that you have a law enforcement background, and I know that you uh, are understandably a little coy about the specific details, but maybe in general you can share what your background is. Yeah, so I've um, I, I like to joke that I'm, I'm truly the jack of all trades and the master of none, and I have about a a, a mile wide experience um, that's about eight feet deep in a number of things. Uh, so I, I you know like every cop, you know I started out in patrol, um, went into the training bureau pretty quickly. And then because of uh, a background I had in finance prior to becoming a cop, I got roped pretty quickly into working narcotics and counter-trafficking operations. So Maybe you could explain real quickly to people, why would a background in finance be helpful in that particular assignment? Uh, so uh, it was most helpful because no one else I worked with really wanted to do the legwork of going through the, the paper part of the crime. And so going through the financial statements, through their bank records, through tax returns, and figuring out, uh, essentially proving that a drug trafficker's assets were illegally gotten because they essentially can't live the lifestyle they're living on you know, their disability income, for example. And that was uh, a lot of the folks that we came across. You know, They had all these assets, all this cash, all these things, and no job. And those two things don't really go together. So I took care of that part of the investigation while I was learning the kind of street side of the investigation. And that was my, my entry into, into narcotics. So not necessarily the sexiest part of the job, but it is the part that caught Al Capone. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And uh, so uh, our unit was, was small enough that even though my main charge was, was on the paper documentation side, um, all of us were involved in all the investigations from beginning to end. Um, it's just that my end out on the street started all the, the paperwork on the, on the other side where everybody else just got to go type about what they did and saw. I got to go start all the records analysis. And uh, that assignment led to, uh, led to some work in SWAT for a few years. Um, started out on, on perimeter containment and entry like most everybody and eventually moved into a precision rifle or sniper observer role. And uh, the last kind of big thing I, I did with my career was in Seaburn uh, and uh, hazmat radiological security issues. So um, did a, a little bit of a lot of things. My only regret is that I could never work canine 
And uh, that's only because my wife told me she would not be worried about two souls going out of the house every day. She couldn't <laughs> take that. So, I was fortunate enough in my career to uh, command the canine unit. Uh, I was never a handler, but uh, that and the and the SWAT commander role were were two of my most favorite assignments in in any kind of a leadership role. And a big part of it was just that in both of those instances, the men and women who work in those units are so proficient and so mm -hmm. dedicated that it's just uh it's impossible not to admire them and uh and then of course the canine you've got the dogs right i mean the dogs are yeah. just awesome so uh have you always wanted to write i've always been a storyteller the first thing that i really remember writing as a piece of fiction was a comic strip i wrote when i was probably about six or seven about a family of cockroaches and I think I probably wrote three strips, and that that was the <laughs> that was the the whole extent of of my foray into uh, into that media. But I think I've I've always enjoyed a good story, hearing it, reading it, or uh, or telling it. Did you uh, make notes while you were on the job, uh, just so you didn't forget certain things? Not necessarily to reproduce them exactly, but just to to be able to remember the flavor of it. You know, I I don't have an eidetic memory, but I am definitely really blessed with a very detailed memory, and um, so much so that when when I write, um, I isolate myself in in the home office, uh, put my headphones on, and I, I listen to whatever typically whatever music my protagonist in the in the scene would listen to, and it's still easy enough for me to step back into into my memories of being a cop uh, of those events of the time and place and events of, of the things that inspired my stories that um my family has to be really cautious about coming in when i'm writing because i'm very easily startled as i i'm, I'm so disappeared into my own head um you know they're like poking me with a stick from across the room that's you know? very wise <laughs> i tell you that's uh, <laughs> instincts never, never change. I I've been uh, playing a video game with headphones on at sometimes in the study to, to not disturb my wife or what she's doing. And she's gotten cautious about getting my attention because I'll whirl around, you know, fists high, ready, yeah. you know, ready. And you just, I mean, it's, you don't even think about it. It's like, yeah. it, it just happens. And so I don't think some people understand that how, when you maintain a level of vigilance and, mm -hmm. and, and preparedness uh, for so many years, you know, it doesn't just go away. And, and cops are one of that group of people that do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, every single time, right? And it, I've been doing this for so long now that every single time I get startled, there, there's, you know, normally when, when you startle someone or you scare them, there's like this, this kind of sense of relief, like, you know, there's tension and then, you know, they, they're relieved. Oh, thank, thankfully it was just mm -hmm. you. Um, I have the complete opposite reaction and, you know, I'm like swear at myself a little bit and my inner monologue is, uh, you know, my, probably my, my old Academy Sergeant yelling at me about how I had my head so far up my ass, somebody was able to sneak up on me and I'm dead now. Like, I, I, I know that that's the, the, the inner voice, um, you know, disappointing me for, for letting that happen, even though, you know, it's, it's totally irrational. Well, it's interesting to me that uh, after the career that you had, you, the protagonist in one of your series is a priest. Yeah. And that, that's the product of uh, my wife and I, we, 
we were sitting uh, sitting around the, the living room one day, and I was taking notes, and I, I think there was uh, maybe a news event, something that uh, had transpired, and we were talking about what a great story, what a great character this would make. And we kind of started brainstorming together, um, and inside of about a half an hour, we had created the 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 universe um, or the the kind of the parameters for this Michael Thomas thriller series. And I was really surprised when I started doing a lot of research to see what it would take to kind of make this believable. How much of my police training, especially in narcotics and surveillance, and a lot of the things that you know, your typical vice cops get trained to do. Um, how much of that worked really well to try to make this a credible character who once worked as a cop is now a priest and is being recruited to to become a, an assassin for the Vatican. That's crazy. That's wild. Um, and you've got, I, I'd have to go back and count, but like half a dozen, seven books in that series? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's six out and... The, the next installment comes out in July, and we're uh, going to start pushing them back to about one every six to 12 months after that. The, the publisher's looking to, to slow the, uh, the, the rate of delivery as, uh, as folks are learning about the series. It's a really wonderful place to be. Well, the Father Michael Thomas series isn't the only one that you write, though. You you write a little bit more of a standard detective series uh, as well. Yeah, so that is uh, my Alex Landon crime series. And Alex Landon works I, – I created a fictional town for that series um, called Dry Creek Arizona. <laughs> and, you know, there's not in this, in this part of Arizona, there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of, uh, undry creeks. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if wet Creek would have been a little bit more ano- <laughs> of an anomaly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, when I was, uh, first putting this series together, I'm, I'm such a, such an eighties brat, um, uh, that I was, uh, was calling it Hill Valley after uh, <laughs> Back to the Future town, but um, uh, but the so I, I created that that fictional town because um, it it fit well um, with the the overall environment that I wanted to depict, which is you know really you know modern day Southwest uh, policing that's outside of Los Angeles. So this this fictional town exists to both. Um, allow me to, to be a lot more honest, I think, with the reader about what life is like as a cop, um, as a cop's family, and as a criminal without either giving too much credit or undue grief to uh, any existing agency, whether I worked for them or not. Right. I, I think that, that that functions really well to let me be a lot more, a lot more candid and a lot more, um, I guess, uh, have a little bit more to play with with the readers and the, the series. Well, you have the additional benefit of of your pseudonym too. I, so do I, but mine's an open secret. I mean, anybody knows River City is Spokane, and it doesn't take much to figure out my real name. Um, I, I didn't guard it very carefully, uh, and that was purposeful. But uh, it, it is a tricky thing when you're writing about mm-hmm. someplace that you've worked. You always run the risk of people, you know, thinking you're writing about them or thinking mm-hmm. that you're you're talking down about them or, or whatever when it's just fiction, right? Right. Um, 
but you you mentioned that you wanted to explore things more honestly. So what are a couple of things for listeners out there that, you know, they might have an idea about what it's like to be a police officer or what a cop's life or work life is like uh, that they're probably wrong about and that's very different than they might expect? Well, I, I think that um, the the startle response, for example, you know, is kind of a practical reality for us. Um, but I, I think that in general – I don't think the public appreciates how cops never, at least cops in America, you know, cops that all the cops that I worked with here in the Southwest, nobody really gets to turn it off. And so whenever we go out anywhere, you know, there's still part of you that's always going to be Semper Cop. And that has, you know, very real consequences for for family relationships. Um, and some of that is a little bit expected, right? So like, you know, if your brother-in-law, you know, uh, <laughs> deals weed on the weekends, obviously you're not going to get, I, I don't think that's a surprise that people would, <laughs> would know that you're not going to get to hang out with him, even if, you know, yeah. he was a, a dear friend before the Academy. But, you know, I, I think um, there's a kind of a perfect illustration. The, the show cops, ran uh what was that like 20 or 24 seasons the if you can find it um i i have a copy on dvd so maybe we'll create a a a, a loaner system here frank um the first reader that emails you in um we'll send them <laughs> we'll send them a copy and they can pass it on <laughs> to the next one um but i i have a dvd copy of the pilot episode of cops and the pilot episode of cops is they followed these cops home with the cameras and everything that, you know, you get warned about in the police academy about, you know, dealing with stress and dealing with, you know, this emotional cycle um, of being charged up on adrenaline for 10 or 12 hours and then crashing when you get home. Um, all of those realities are, are in that first pilot episode. And they took all that out and obviously made a lot of the, the editorial changes they did to focus on specific aspects. But, you know, I, I think for the, probably the, the biggest thing that um, readers and the public, I think would, would truly be surprised about more than anything else is truly how much we hate bad cops. I don't think that could ever be emphasized enough to let folks who haven't had some similar experience understand the absolute rage and betrayal that you feel when somebody else with a badge sullies their oath. It's an interesting conversation and probably one we can't go too deep into here just for time constraints, but there's a saying that people will trot out every so often when there's a, a some sort of a police scandal and, and it'll be, well, there, you know, it's just a couple of bad apples. And then the response has been, well, if you know about a bad apple and you don't do something about it, then guess what? You're a bad apple too. Mm -hmm. And I've had that conversation with people who of course aren't in the profession. So they have their own, their own ideas and their own experiences right. and their own biases and perceptions, just like we do. We have our own blind, mm -hmm. blindness as well. But I try to explain to them, look, they'll point to someone and say, well, everybody said they knew that guy was, was bad, was dirty. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, when they say that, they mean they suspect and they're pretty sure right. their suspicions are right, but they don't have any proof. I said, right. what, what are you going to do? I, you know, I heard Gavin is taking money 
from from, <laughs> from drug dealers. Okay, yeah. well, I heard it from who? And and then what? I'm going to go tell my sergeant I heard this rumor. Maybe, but what's the sergeant going to say to you? You know, the sergeant's mm-hmm. going to say to you, do you have any proof? Do you know this? Did you see it firsthand? And there's a big difference between witnessing malfeasance, witnessing mm-hmm. corruption, and not doing something about it, in which case I completely agree with the criticism. Mm-hmm. Between that and hearing rumors or seeing cultural tendencies, but not any direct evidence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're still going to draw conclusions from what you see. You're still going to decide that Gavin, he looks dirty to me, but yeah. you know, uh, and so then when Gavin's dirt gets shown to the public and everybody's mm-hmm. like, I have, it doesn't surprise me in the least. Everybody thinks that makes me corrupt because I had those suspicions right. and didn't, I don't know what uh, run a sting operation on you or something. I, I, I don't know. And so that kind of, uh, sometimes that's a little frustrating to hear. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, internal affairs, yeah, that's their job. But for the rest of us, yeah. we're, we're not looking inward. We're looking outward unless we see something that, right. you know, to act upon. And so uh, I do think you're right. I think there's a, a, a absolute b- betrayal uh, mm-hmm. is is the way to describe it. That's how people feel. Yeah, and that's um, that has been a, a really useful literary point for me in both, uh, both series that, um, that I have out. Um, is that difference between what you know and what you can prove. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. thing for cops to deal with, even in their normal day-to-day operations and in, in being very confident a bad guy got away. There's and, even another layer to that, though, too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what you know, what you can prove, uh, and what you can prove in a court of law, like what meets mm-hmm. the evidence standard as well. You know, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, and, and so just because you know something, <laughs> you're, you're a long yeah. way from putting someone in jail. Thankfully, as much as I, I detest corruption, the, the folks accused, whether they have a badge or not, have the same constitutional rights as everyone else. Right. So, mm-hmm. and that allows for, you know, me to play around um, some based on, you know, actual events, um, but to play around with in this fictional series um, with, you know, what characters know, what they can prove and, and what they're trying to, to, to overcome and do right by and reckoning their, their own moral conscience about um, the, the troubles they encounter. Yeah. It's an interesting topic at any time. Yeah, but probably even more so in the time that we live in. I think it's a, a unprecedented sort of a period in in the in the history of placing that we're experiencing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it is undoubtedly difficult for those men and women who are doing the job right now, and certainly not even easy for people like you and I who are looking back yeah. at careers but still feel as if we're part of the larger community – it's probably necessary and that's not to lay it at the feet of the individuals doing this job. However many hundreds of thousands of them there are, mm-hmm. uh, I'm talking about institutional decisions and, and so yes. forth. And Yeah. And you know, from that perspective, right. I definitely believe that a lot is getting laid at the feet of the cops. A lot of it undeservedly within the context of the cops being responsible or being able to make change. Right. Is if you look at policing, especially in any kind of urban environment, the realities that affect urban populations have taken generations to create across 
different sectors of society, some within and some without the, the, the neighborhoods themselves. But, um, you know, in a city like Los Angeles, the decisions that have led to the current circumstances are well over 100 years old in origin. And even uh, even in Phoenix, right, like the decisions that that created a lot of the downtrodden urban parts of, of Phoenix Metro today, those places and those problems began um, in the early 1900s. So, you know, there's, uh, I think, a, a lot of despair, a lot of things that we as a society should definitely be looking at and agreeing that these things need to be resolved. But we also have to recognize that there's a lot of hard work um, ahead and a lot of num- uh, a large number of social avenues for us to get this corrected so that future generations of Americans have much more equal opportunity, not a quality of outcome, but a quality of opportunity truly. And when we can get to that point, um, I mean, it's going to be a really incredible day. I think partnerships are the key that if I were, if I were still in, in the profession leading an, an organization, that would be one of the places that I would focus is partnerships. Yeah. And I think that um, I, I was talking with someone uh, recently on, on, on this general topic and on recruiting and retention and how in today's environment can you possibly hope to keep the best and most qualified people. Um, and it has to be, you know, obviously an intrinsic choice that they're making. But mm-hmm. throughout my career, I spent most of my time um, involved in training in some capacity, training um, new recruits to be cops, training current cops to be better cops. And from from my mentality, we, the mentality that I trained my guys in and gals um, is that I expected them to be guardian servant warriors. And you hear kind of those terms thrown around separately, sometimes together, not usually all in conjunction with each other. But uh, we had to find people who were willing to go out and put themselves at risk for strangers who didn't like them, who were willing to serve those people equally and to the best of their ability at every opportunity. And when the wolf showed up at the door, they had to have the heart of a warrior to go out sometimes by themselves to deal with that problem. And finding someone who is equally proficient in all of those roles is almost impossible. And right now, getting to retain someone who is good at those roles, who has another opportunity to not face the daily dilemma of police work, uh, man, it's an uphill battle. And we desperately need good cops right now, probably more than ever. Yeah, I like that model uh, a lot. We we spoke about it when I was on your podcast, and one of the points that you made that I thought was fantastic was that those are presented, uh, you know, in in order of frequency. I mean, you're going to be a guardian mm-hmm. most of the time, you're going to be a servant some of the time, and and you may occasionally need to be a warrior, and you have to have all three of those gears. You have to have all three mm-hmm. of those tools in your toolbox, and if you don't, then you're going to perform in a substandard way when it comes time to use that gear or take out that tool and mm-hmm. apply it. And then uh, retention is, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, healthcare is, is, is encountering much the same dilemma. Mm-hmm. So is education. So uh, if anything we can do to resolve that, yeah. is we, should, <laughs> we should be doing it. Um, but this is yeah. all pretty heavy talk. Uh, uh, and, 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 the, and the reality is, is sometimes you just need to get away and enjoy yourself. Yeah. And, and so uh, step into a good book. And that's what you can do. 
uh, here with the Father Michael Thomas series uh, that starts uh, really with a prequel, The Confession, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and continues up to the most recent, The uh, Exporter. And then your your Landon series that starts with the Glass Cook. There's what? How mm-hmm. many? How many in there? About six in there too, I think. Right? Yeah. So there's uh, there's uh, six installments um, currently in uh, in that one, and yeah, there's a lot to come with with both of these series. And I'm I'm really looking forward to to being able to to come come back on and talk to a little bit more about a couple of the couple of the books where where they head when they get released, Frank. But man. Um, yeah, I, I could not be more excited about about these two different series, and um, I would really like to add a few more hours in the day just so I can get some more writing done. <laughs> like, I, I'm too willing to disappear into my own little made up world here. Well, and people can also uh, find you uh, on the podcast Writers on the Beat. What's the next? Uh, what's the next Michael Thomas uh, book on the horizon? Yeah, so the the next one comes out in July, and it's called The Importer. And for uh, anyone who happens to have already keyed into uh, The Exporter being out now, there's a real close tie between those two installments. And and to current current world events, um, The Exporter takes place in uh, primarily in New Orleans, and with uh, events of an import-export business um, doing terrible things um, that has ties to the Russian mob via Odessa and Ukraine. So, um, yeah, I, I got that to the publisher um, not long before uh, the end of last year, and things have changed so much since then. They certainly have. And then Alex Landon, is there a new one coming there? Yeah, so the Alex Landon series is uh, actually set the uh, the publisher, Liquid Mind Media, is going to be uh, republishing the Landon series um, probably we're looking at probably about August is my expectation at this point. So there's going to be a, a new one coming out. Um, that'll probably hit in early 23 and it's going to be an incredibly new direction for that character and for, uh, American crime fiction. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm overselling it, but it's going to be a really, really unique and original story for, um, that takes this whole series in a new direction that, um, I, I think the readers are really going to enjoy. Well, some exciting things on the horizon for both the father Michael Thomas series and the detective Alex Landon series. And, uh, you can look forward to some more episodes of writers on the beat, Pretty much anywhere that you can get podcasts, it's there. And Gavin, I'm glad I finally got you on the show, and uh, I appreciate you being here. I could not thank you more for the opportunity, Frank. It's always uh, always good to chat with a fellow brother in blue, right? All right, folks, there you go, uh, Gavin Reese. Uh, I had a great time talking to him. Uh, you know, as you no doubt picked up from the interview, uh, I enjoyed my my time on his uh, podcast, uh, Writers on the Beat, as well. Uh, if you enjoyed the police specific portion of this conversation, there's more of it on the episode of his uh, show that I was on. Uh, we spent a little more time on it there. Uh, and I would encourage you to check out his thrillers and or his procedurals and uh, check out the other guests on Writers on the Beat. Uh, a quick Zafiro update for you, as I've mentioned before. I recently published the anthology The Tattered Blue Line, short stories of contemporary policing. 14 different authors, all of whom have law enforcement experience, 
writing about uh, just a slice of humanity concerning doing the job from the police perspective, but also the humanity of those that they encounter. So check that out. Check out the uh, different stories by these 14 different authors. If you like the story by one of them or more than one of them, go check out their other work. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to include some of my uh, friends in the profession and to make some new friends uh, in the process of uh, getting a very diverse group of authors together. So the Tattered Blue Line, short stories of contemporary policing available now uh, in digital and paperback. I suppose it's time to tell you the name of the upcoming Charlie 316 installment. It is called The Ride Along. It will be out on May 6th. And I will tell you a little bit more about the plot next episode. Uh, But it is uh, the fifth book in that series that I write with Colin Conway. Uh, This one's a little different than the others, uh, but I'm really looking forward to it hitting the shelves. All right, on the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Stephen Burdick. Stephen has a novella and a novella collection out. Uh, He writes these novellas set in Florida and uh, has the coolest mustache so far this season. Easy. It's not the second isn't even close. So uh, unfortunately, you won't get to see that because this is an audio only podcast. Uh, You'll just have to trust me on that one. So that'll be next episode. Uh, Stephen Burdick. Uh, in the meantime, I'd like to thank Gavin Reese for coming on the show, for being a great guest, Down and Out Books for sponsoring the show, and of course you, the listener, for being here for over 150 episodes. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this show. Uh, please support the authors, especially those that, that interest you, by buying their books or borrowing them from the library or uh, whatever you can do uh, to, to support them. I'll be back next episode with Stephen Burdick. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. (laughs) 